John chapter 13, we're looking at verse 35. Your attention, please. It's time for the big rollout. Strike up the band. Drum roll, please. Release the balloons. Tweet about it. Jesus is about to make his big reveal. Jesus is about to show to a far greater extent who he really is, to display more fully his splendor and his glory. That's how today's passage begins. Let's take a few minutes to get our heads into what's going on in today's passage. We are nearing the end in the Gospel of John of Jesus' life and mission. Jesus has already entered Jerusalem in the story. That's God's royal city. He was riding on a donkey, and he entered to the acclaim of palm branches and shouted hosannas. Then John told us that some Greeks had come to Jesus' disciples saying, we'd like to see Jesus too. And this was significant because up to this point, Jesus had come and he carried out his mission mainly among the Jews. But now he's attracted the interest of foreigners, some Greeks as well. And this prompted Jesus to say in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man, by the way, was one of Jesus' favorite nicknames for himself. Jesus knew that he had come for more than just his fellow Jews. He had come for the whole world. And the coming of these Greeks, these outsiders to him with curiosity and with interest was further evidence that Jesus' broader mission was now beginning to unfold, that Jesus' impact was about to become much larger than just to his own Jewish people. Meanwhile, John tells us, among Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, the reception toward Jesus was mixed. Some Jews believed in him, others rejected him. And so a divide was opening up at that time, a division within God's own people between those who would follow Jesus and those who would be against him. And Jesus knew that those who were against him most strongly were now crying for his blood and plotting his murder. These events all made it clear to Jesus that the time had come, the hour had come, as he put it, for the last and greatest act of his earthly life his death on a cross, and three days later, his resurrection from the dead. Those events being imminently before him, Jesus took his closest followers and retreated with them to an upper room in Jerusalem. He wanted to get some close, uninterrupted, intimate time with these close ones to teach them, to celebrate the Jewish Passover one more time with them, that festival of salvation that the Jews celebrated. And so the first thing Jesus does is that at that meal, John tells us, to teach them is that he washes his followers' feet. This was a dirty job. It was a demeaning job, a job reserved for the lowest of servants. And Jesus tells his disciples, this is what I'm like. And this is what I've come to do for you, to serve you. And so this is how you should treat one another washing one another's feet too. Then after that, Jesus predicts there in the upper room that one of his own number, one whose feet he has just washed, is about to betray him to death. And Jesus knows which one. It will be Judas Iscariot. 
And so Judas leaves the meal to do just that, to betray Jesus. And now everything is set in motion and the end is going to come swiftly. And it's in this context that we read in our passage for today, starting in verse 31, Jesus say, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Your attention, please. It's time for the big rollout. Strike up the band. Release the balloons. Drum roll, please. Tweet about it. Jesus is about to make his big reveal. To show to a far greater extent who he is. To display more fully his splendor, his glory, God's splendor, God's glory. How? By being raised powerfully from the dead, yes. But before that, by suffering by being humiliated in shame, by dying a brutal death on a cross. We're so used to this part of the story, it doesn't jolt us like it should, like it did for Jesus' first followers. What? Glorified, lifted up, exalted by suffering and dying on a cross? In Jesus' culture, to die on a cross was the ultimate shame, the ultimate tragedy, the worst possible way you could die. Those who died on crosses were considered to be accursed. They were the most unfortunate of all. They were the lowest of the low. And yet Jesus was embracing this fate. Calling it his glory. Calling it God's glory. How could this be impossible? Unless we've had it all wrong. Unless our whole view of life is somehow upside down. Unless success and winning and greatness is not found in coming out on top. In being comfortable and influential and popular. Unless instead those things are found in the extent we go in sacrificing ourselves. In disadvantaging ourselves in order to advantage and bless other people. Unless those things are found, that is, in the extent of our selfless love. And that is exactly what Jesus is trying to impress upon us. Not just by telling us, but by showing us, by going first, by leading by example. Jesus says, do you want to see fully and clearly what I'm like? Do you want to see fully and clearly what God is like? Don't look to the heavens. Don't look to the clouds or sunbeams to what is mighty or beautiful. No, look instead to the horrendous, hideous gruesomeness of the cross. Not because God has a warped, twisted preoccupation with torture and sadism. No, rather because God loves us so much that God is willing to go to that lowest place to experience with us and for us the worst possible things we might experience in order to identify with us, in order to meet us, in order to be present with us in our darkest human hours, and most of all, in order to save us. In Jesus Christ, God experienced the absolute worst. God experienced hell for us so that by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't have to. That's what God is like. That is God's heart. That is God's glory. 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, Jesus says, and God is glorified in him. The cross, that's what God is like, that kind of love. So what a tragedy that, that people have so many other pre- preconceptions of God. So many false impressions. That God is a miser. That God is a killjoy. That God is a nitpicker. That God is an angry abuser. Or that God is just a jolly but naive doting grandfather. Who's going to help these people see that God is none of these things? Who's going to make it clear to people that God loves us so much that God is willing to come close, to come down to our level, however low our situation may be, and be with us in it and suffer and die for us so that we can be rescued and we can be reconciled to God? Doesn't this great news, this wonderful news, deserve to be shared widely so everyone knows? Well, Jesus thinks so. And that's why a little later in chapter 21, Jesus will say to his followers, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Go, I'm sending you on my mission. Tell what you've seen and experienced. Share about it. Let people know. But right here in today's passage, Jesus lets his followers know how they're to share, how they're to tell. All... um, how to to tell with their words, but in addition to their words, he he, he lets them know what way of of resonating or what way of sharing the good news will most resonate and will most convince people of God's love. It's this. It's if God's own people will truly love one another. If God's own people will truly love one another. If we ourselves are like Christ, if, if we also will take up our crosses in love, if we also will disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others. Verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So let's talk a little bit about Jesus' command to love. And then we'll go back and we'll explore the connection that Jesus makes between our loving one another and the success of our mission to to let people know about God's amazing love given for the world through Jesus Christ. So Jesus commands us to love one another. He says it's a new command. But why is it a new one? Because Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God had already commanded us to love one another, to love our neighbor in particular. What's new about love? Well, Jesus is starting something new, isn't he? A new salvation, a new covenant, a new relationship between God and his people, giving his people new hearts, inviting them to become part of a new creation giving them newness of life, making them into a new people. And in this new creation, in this new kingdom, among this new people, what's the most important command? Love. You know, in the Gospel of John, not only is love the new command and the most important command that Jesus gives to his disciples, it's actually the only command. If you search 
the word command or commandment in John, and you look at all the times Jesus gives a command, that command is always love. That's John's perspective in telling us what we most need to know about Jesus. As Jesus says elsewhere, as the other gospel writers tell us, love is the most important command, the greatest command of all. And I love the way New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it. He says, to love one another is the simplest, clearest, and hardest command of all. (laughs) Hardest, especially when we realize the kind of love Jesus is talking about. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have served you, so you must love one another. As I have washed your feet, so you must love one another. As I have given up my life for you, gone to the cross for you, so you must love one another. As I have disadvantaged myself to advantage you, so you must love one another. A new command I give you. Love one another. Why? Well, for one thing, what better way to show the world what God is like? What God's love is like in Jesus Christ than if we, his people, love one another like God loves them. Verse 35 again. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We could tell them about God's love, and we must. But they may find it hard to imagine. We could tell them, but they may think it's too good to be true. We could tell them, but if we don't live it, they may doubt it's true. But if we show them, if they can see it and taste it, then everyone will know that we are Jesus' disciples and that God's amazing love is real. Love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. When I was in college, I was part of a Christian fellowship group, and we had a real desire to let our campus know how great Jesus Christ is and and how amazing God's love and, and offer of salvation is that Jesus provides. And when we shared this good news, the other students on campus responded in many different ways. But I'll never forget how one young woman responded. She was a a thinker. She'd grown up in small town Pennsylvania. She was in some ways sheltered. And so she was wide-eyed at college, drinking in all the new ideas and the possibilities that college had to offer her. She was very intelligent and she was thoughtful about it all. And as she was mulling the, the claims of Jesus alongside lots of other ideas and philosophies, she said, the one thing that attracts me to you Christians and to your beliefs is your love. In all these other philosophies and ideas, I don't sense any love. But you guys really love each other. That's how Jesus said it was supposed to be. It's how Jesus said it should be. We need to love one another. But even if we are loving one another, how will anyone know if we're hidden away? If there's great love happening among us in this log cabin and in our homes in smaller groups, if there's warm friendship and there's patience and there's forgiveness, if there's practical care and concern for each other and sacrificial sharing and help, how will anyone see it or know it or taste it unless they're here with us? And 
if we just do our thing and, and just hope someday they'll show up, what if they don't show up? We could say, well, too bad for them. They should have come to church. But would that be loving? No, Jesus sent us to them. As the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. He said, go to them. As the Father has sent me down from the comfort of heaven, down from the warm love and security I enjoyed with my Father in heaven, down into the world, down to where people are to show them our love, God's love, so you too go to where they are. And as you go, love one another because that's how they'll know. That's why we talk about being a missional church. Missional is not about waiting for people to get around to coming to us. It's about going to them. It's about being sent because they're not coming to us anymore. Hardly. (laughs) Do you remember when we had about a, well, late last summer, we had a farewell party for Phil and Lydia. And um, they had gotten to know, made friends with a number of people outside of the church. And we had a farewell party here for them, and they invited some of their friends to come. Not to church, not to a church service, not even into the building. We, we had the party on, on church property, on the patio. And how many of them came? Not a single one. That's why we have to go to them. And, and so we've been trying different ways as a church to do that. Missional communities, Bible studies in square dancing clubs and pond communities, uh, hanging out in bars even, befriending people at coffee shops, doing services at nursing homes. But of course, not everyone here is in a place or in a season of life to be a part of a missional community or to have an outreach ministry like that. But every one of us lives somewhere, likely with neighbors, And most of us go to work or we go to school every day with other people. And hopefully we try to be missionaries. We try to represent Jesus in those places. But if you're all alone there, if nobody else there follows Jesus, here's the problem. One person can't love one another. (laughs) You ever tried? (laughs) It's lonely. If you're the only follower of Jesus in that place, those in your neighborhood, those in your workplace or in your school can't see Jesus' followers loving one another. It takes at least two to love. Which is one reason I suspect that when Jesus sent his, his first followers on mission, he almost always sent them at least two by two. He didn't even send them to get a donkey without sending two. It was the buddy system. Why? Why, why did he send them out on mission almost never one by one, but almost always at, at least two, if not more? Well, one reason is because it takes at least two to love one another. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Go, and as you go, love one another. Give people a taste of my incredible love. Don't just tell them, show them as well. And by this, they will know that you are my disciples. But again, here's the thing. You can't do this all by yourself. It takes at least two 
And that's why last year, as we were evaluating our progress as a church and fulfilling our vision, we did a brief survey, you might remember. And um, get ready. We're going to put it up in a minute, Cheryl. Um, and then Sunday by Sunday, we'd, we'd share one of the results. We'd put a, a chart on the screen showing one aspect of, of how we're doing. Don't put it up yet. Um, <laughs> and, so it's a psych. You have to wait. <laughs> and, and, and as the elders were forming these survey questions, um, this is the reason why, what we're talking about, that we said one of the questions should be this. It should be, have you found a partner at work or in your neighborhood, etc., so that you're not alone in seeking to further God's mission there? Have you found a partner? Or are you all alone in God's mission? The elders felt this was a very important question, a very important result to highlight from the survey and so when we were sharing the results week by week back earlier in the year, we didn't share this one. We held it back until we could find a time to do a whole sermon on it. And finally, that's happening this morning. So here's the result. <laughs> Just about a quarter, uh, 27%, have found a partner. So we've got work to do on this one. If, if most of us are out there on our own, how can we show the world that we love one another? And if we can't, how will they know that we are Jesus' disciples? Now, this is a hard one for us to grasp, I know, because most of us are Americans. <laughs> Individualism is so ingrained into us right from the time we're born. We're, we're so used to going it alone and doing it ourselves. And, and there's no end to the evangelism books over the years and training courses that, that have, been, have been written and put on from an American perspective, from an individualistic point of view. But guess what? It's not Jesus' perspective. Jesus' instinct, Jesus' impulse, is always that mission happens together in community. After all, how can you have mission without loving one another? And how can you love one another all by yourself? You know, Phil Lucas and I and, and others who spent time hanging out over the past couple of years at Murphy's in Yorktown, we experienced this. It, it's one thing to, to sit in the bar alone and try to tell, get to know people and strike up conversations. And Phil, Phil in particular was fabulously good at that. But it's a whole other thing and a richer thing and a more powerful thing to do it together to have relationships and to include others in those relationships, to, to let them see how we interact, how we love one another, and, and to each be able to offer different gifts to one another and to others that we met. Sometimes we'd be talking to someone and I'd have an insight to share and afterwards Phil would say, wow, I'm so glad you're here because that was just the right thing to say to that person and I never could have thought of that. Other times it was Phil who was, was just the right person for that conversation, or it was Nancy, or it was Kathy, or it was Nina, or it was others of you. Because, see, what we were doing was bringing church to the bar. Bringing God's people, bringing God's family, and the love and care that we enjoy here, and offering them a taste of it there. That's what Jesus wants us to do, to love one another and as we love, everyone will know that we are his disciples. But you can't love all by yourself. So here's my challenge to you this morning for the summer and into the fall. It's very simple. Will you pray? Will you ask God 
to give you a mission partner. Or two or three. Pray big. (laughs) Will, Will you ask God to lead you to this person or these people? Where you live, where you work, where you go to school, the gym, where you, wherever you hang out. Here's what I find. God is more than willing to answer my prayers, especially a prayer like this, which is what he wants for us anyway. But if I'm not looking for the answer, if I'm not praying for the answer, it might pass me right by. It also might take some time because God might have to work on this person to get them ready. <laughs> So, second, not only will you pray, but will you open your eyes and your heart and persist in this? Keep your eyes open. Keep your heart open. Keep looking expectantly for God to send you a partner or partners wherever you live your life, wherever you spend a good bit of your time. A partner will bring gifts that you don't have. A partner will give you encouragement. And most of all, a partner will give you someone to love. And it will be exciting to see maybe a year from now if that chart has gone up. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for sharing your glory with us, for sharing God's glory with us. Thank you for showing us who you are. Thank you for loving us to the full greatest extent for doing whatever it took for us. Thank you for teaching us that that's how we are supposed to treat and relate to one another. Thank you for inviting us to tell and to show that love as we go out into the world to spread it. Please help us. Please make us better at it. Please teach us to love. Amen.